Well, two weeks ago today, you may even know where you were when this happened, but two weeks ago today, Kobe Bryant died. You know, I, my brother and I were pretty close. I've got a brother who's three years younger than me, and we texted a decent amount, and it was actually in between the morning services and the evening services, and he texted me and said, did you hear about Kobe Bryant? I said, no. He said, his helicopter crashed. I thought, really? Is that, you never know. Is that, you know, is that a real story? Or, you know, as I looked into it, as you looked into it, it was a real story, right? And we're still, I, I still think about it all the time. I don't know if you do. I mean, you know, his, the memorial service is coming up at the end of this month, and people think a lot about it, no matter even if you were a big basketball fan, because he's just like, there's a lot of reasons. He died young, 41. He died unexpectedly. Uh, we all watched him play basketball. He died with his daughter. And part, you know, you, you watch people talk about it afterwards. Like Jimmy Fallon and him were good friends. And Jimmy Fallon said, I thought he was going to live forever. And Magic Johnson, who was an older basketball player, he said, I thought he was going to talk at my funeral, not the other way around. And I bring this up today because if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 5, what we're going to see is, in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see another guy, and he's really young, and he dies very quickly, and he doesn't see it coming. And when, as you're turning there, you know, what the Bible tells us to do when we think about our life is to count our days, right? And you, may, you might go, what does it mean to count your days? That sounds like an old idea. It's actually not an old idea. You still do it. Uh, if you've ever been excited about your wedding or, I don't know, graduating or going on vacation or getting a job or uh, looking forward to your birthday, I mean, we looking at Christmas, right? In all those environments, you know there's, you know, 18 days until or 25 days until my job's done. You've been counting your days. And counting your days, by the way, is a really good thing to do because it, it brings everything into perspective. I'll, I'll give you kind of two personal examples. I was thinking about my dad. I talk about my dad a decent amount. We've got a good relationship. I love him. He's 62. Men live to be about 80 on average. So my dad's got about, you know, he might live a lot longer, but let's just say he has 18 years left. Um, and I see him four times a year, roughly. We've got a great relationship. Just He lives in Pittsburgh, and I live here, and you know, I don't see him that much. And so it's like, well, if, you, if I do the math, I'm going to see my dad 72 more times in my life, and that's it. And that's kind of a humbling thing. It's not a great thing to talk about, but it just brings life into perspective, right? Like when your kid turns six, they're a third of the way done in your house. And by the time they're in third grade, half of your investment in them is over when they're in the house. And it's like in some sense, that's a terrible thing to think about. But there's something about thinking about your life, and you get about 30,000 days, that, that brings everything into perspective. And, and the Bible talks about we should live in such a way that we'd be ready to die at any moment. Like I heard the story, I actually heard the story, I actually met these missionaries. They were uh, overseas, and, uh, and they were in this rough patch, you know, uh, I don't even know where it was, it was in a hard-to-reach hard area. And they were going up a cliff, and they're, uh, as they were going up this cliff, the door of their van opened up. And they both almost fell out over the cliff outside of the van. And, and almost, you know, if they would have fallen out, they would have died for sure. And they, the, the van pulls back around and they close the van up. And, and the, I hear the lady, she, the lady's still telling the story. She said, I looked at my husband and I said, I was ready. Isn't that amazing? She said, I, 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 we almost died there. And the feeling when I was right there is, I'm ready. And, and part of the story that we're going to see today is, are we ready? I mean, I'm not trying to be a doomsday guy or, or, you know, not trying to be dramatic here, but are we ready? Are we living in such a way that we'd be ready to die? Well, with that, with that in mind, let's pick up in Daniel chapter 5, because we get to see the story of a guy named Belshazzar, okay? Now, Belshazzar, now, uh, don't get him confused with um, Daniel's uh, Babylonian name. This Belshazzar is not Daniel. Daniel will come in the story. Belshazzar is a king. It's about 25 years later after chapter 4. Like, in the book of Daniel... We're kind of jumping all over the place. That's how the writer writes. That's how Daniel writes. He writes so that we would, um, we would get these main ideas, these big stories. So we're going to be introduced to a guy named Belshazzar. Let's, 
Let's pick up with him in verse 1. King Belshazzar, he made a great feast. So he's this young guy, and he throws a party. This is the first frat party, okay? It's right. We're going to see this. This is the first frat party in Scripture. For a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. So, you know, here he is, and, you know, here's what he's doing. He's drinking a lot in front of people to impress them, okay? This is classic college guy, right, or college girl. Uh, he's, and, and it's interesting because we're introduced to him, and if, if you pick up chapter 4, you go, well, we're going to find out that he's actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be called his father, but that's just because that's the way they talk, like in the line of, in the ancestry of, but think about it this way. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who we saw last week, if you've been following along, or two weeks ago. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a Christian. His whole life has changed. He kind of gives a State of the Union address in chapter 4 and says, this is, it's my testimony. Here's what, here's what the Lord has done in my life. And then we pick up, and we're going to find out in this chapter that his son goes, goes astray, or his grandson goes astray. Now, does that happen? Yes. Right? Do godly parents sometimes have a couple godly kids and maybe not a godly kid? Or do they re- try real hard and they try to raise a godly kid, but maybe goes, he or she goes sideways? Yes. Many of you have heartbreakingly told me some of these stories. Right? And, and that, that's actually possible. See, what happens is some people, sometimes people will take a verse. They'll take a verse like, um, there's a proverb that says, if you train a child in the way that he or she should go, they will not depart from it. Well, it's a proverb, not a promise. That's helpful to know. A proverb is, here's a proverb. It's a pattern and path. It works most of the time. The book of Psalms is, the book of Psalms is right next to Proverbs because it's God's people going, why aren't the Proverbs working? <laughs> that's, that's what the Psalms are. Why aren't the Proverbs working? Like the Proverbs say, like, you know, the, the wicked won't be rich. And there's rich people who are wicked. Well, you know, that's kind of, the, that's the Psalms. They're dealing with all that. So here's what we have. And we have a, a young guy and We've all seen this, right? The young guy who comes up, he's, he's got a godly family, but he wants to blaze his own trail. He wants to be his own person. He wants to, he's kind of rebellious. He wants to express himself. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to feel the rules of his parents. And so he goes off. And he throws this massive feast. Now, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with feasts, right? In the Bible, there, there's actually seven feasts in the Old Testament where God says, hey, I actually want you to throw a party, right? But, but your whole life can't be feasting, right? That's the problem with Americans, Right? The, the Bible talks about feasting and fasting. Feasting should be sometimes, fasting should be sometimes, moderation should be lots of the time. And so what we see is he's, he throws this massive feast, and then look what happens in verse 2. In verse 2 it says this, Belshazzar, he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Here's the first big thing we see, that we should be using God's things for God's purposes. We should use God's things for God's purposes. What's going to get him in trouble, what's going to get Belshazzar in trouble, what gets you in trouble, what gets me in trouble, is taking the things that God has used and not using them in the way God has prescribed them to be used, right? Like, okay, so the first thing that he, the, the whole kind of background of the story is that he drinks too much. Like that's, you know, that's the first thing that he does not use rightly. He's going to end up making a bunch of poor decisions because he drank too much. Now, that's actually one of the reasons the Bible says not to drink too much, not to get drunk, right? Because nobody drank too much, woke up the next morning and said, I made a bunch of great decisions last night, right? <laughs> right? Because drinking too much, does too, we actually know why people drink too much. We, we don't know all the reasons, but we know why people drink too much. Well, number one, it gives you a dopamine, dopamine kick. Uh, it means it makes you feel good. It makes you have a lot of fun, right? And there's about 5 to 10% of the population that it makes them have a lot, a lot of fun. They respond way differently than everybody else to it about 5 to 10% of the population. All right, so that's the first thing it does. The second thing it does is it dampens anxiety in your life. 
Why? That's why it's a social lubricant on the college campus. That's what it does. It dampens anxiety. It's like, well, I'm nervous. Well, now I'm not because I drank. Right? It's, what it does is it softens the world. It's interesting, they've done studies. It doesn't make you not know the consequences, it makes you not care about the consequences. You actually could ask somebody who's drank too much, what's going to happen if they do this? And they would tell you, they just wouldn't care. And so what ends up happening, the reason I say this, is he, he, he drinks too much, and that, that's going to set up the whole rest of the story, because then he starts making foolish decisions. The first thing he does is he takes um, the vessels out of the house of God, and he doesn't use them the way that God wants them to be used, right? And this is a really helpful principle in life, is that what God designs, God also directs. Right? You can think about it this way, like, like, um, and this I think will be really helpful for, for all of us, is what happens is God will create something and then Satan will try to counterfeit it. Uh, God will make something, and I'm going to give you some examples, and then Satan will come and manipulate it. God will design something and then Satan comes and he tries to distort it, right? And the, the better the thing God designed, the greater powers it has when it's distorted for evil. So think about it. I mean, it's like, well, you know, I, I know we use a lot of, you know, uh, sexual examples because it's such a part of our culture today, but you know, what is sex? It's like, well, sex is, you know, what creates new life and what joins together a husband and a wife. It's like, well, sounds pretty amazing. Sounds pretty powerful. Sounds pretty pleasurable. It sounds like it's, a, it's it was God's idea and wow, it's amazing, but you know, it's, it's like fire and it's meant to be kept in the fireplace, right? But what happens is, well, Satan comes and he distorts sexuality to all these different ideas and we can see, you know, terrible things like rape and incest all types of fornication, all other kind of terrible things happen because of, of sexuality that becomes twisted and distorted. Let me give you a couple other examples. Work is a really good thing, right? Like work is something that God, I mean, I don't have time to give a whole theology on work, but you get what work is. Work is like, hey, it's, it, yes, it's how you provide for your family. That is a part of it, of course. The Bible talks about that. And work is how you glorify God. And work is how you serve people. Like Martin Luther and I talk about him sometimes. He's, he lived in the 1500s. He was a really smart guy. Started the Reformation. Um, basically, Martin Luther, he said that when you work, you are the fingers and hands of God. So, you know, how does God clean up this city? Well, through the janitors. That's how he does it. How does God get rid of all the trash? Well, through the trashmen. You know, how does God do all the landscaping? Well, through the landscapers. That's how God does it. We're the fingers of God. But in our culture, right, we, we just, work gets distorted, and work can become our primary identity. Like, I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Lloyd-Jones, but some of you if you're in the medical field, you, sh you should know a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor. Like, you know, he, 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 I don't know, can't remember what kind of doctor he was right now, but he was a, a doctor. He took care of people. He was in the medical profession. And uh, he actually left the medical profession to be a pastor later in his life. He was a very, very accomplished doctor. And one of the things he observed, he said, what I, he said, most people that I know that are doctors, you could put on their tombstone, born a man, died a doctor. And I don't know, again, I don't know. It's probably any profession, right? But Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor and then became a pastor, said that there was a unique temptation in doctors and maybe in lawyers and maybe, I don't know who else, maybe all of us to some extent, certainly, to define themselves completely by their work. Well, and certainly in a society where you go, oh, I'm a doctor, whoa, or you're a lawyer, whoa, you're an engineer, you're an entrepreneur, you're a CEO. It's like, well, you know, it's, that's nice to define yourself by those kind of things. So, you know, or, or you know, it, it helps us to, when we understand how God's designed something, it helps us to use it properly, okay? Because you can think about, you know, think about Windex and a can of Coke, okay? Two things that have two completely different purposes, right? If you could talk to a can of Coke and it could speak to you, it'd say, it's happiest when you drink it, right? Because that's what it's meant to do. And if you could say to a Windex, what are you happiest when you're doing? You know, the Windex would say, I'm happiest when I'm cleaning. But what would happen if you try to clean with Coke? You're, some of your kids have tried to do that, right? No, it's not, it's not helpful. Uh, what would you do if you try to drink Windex? Not just unhelpful, very dangerous. 
right? And so we have all these things that God has designed, but we're not using them properly. Okay, let's talk about food for a second, right? A third of Americans are obese. There are more obese people in the world than there are starving people in the world, which is kind of a weird thing to celebrate, you know? But um, thank God there's not as many starving people, but, but there's a third of Americans are obese, and a third of, another third of Americans are overweight. So two-thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. Don't tell me that's not a worship issue. Don't tell me that we don't maybe have a problem in a relationship with food that's unhealthy, right? And then there's the other end of it where, where it's weird because, right, there's always two extremes. That's the other end of it. It's like you care way too much about food. Like, like you know what I mean by that? It's got to be organic and it's got to be free range and it's got to be, you know, no GMOs, right? Or whatever else. I, don't even, I can't keep up with it all, right? And it's actually, it's actually the other extreme of you're so concerned and we're so worried about food and God's like, you can eat it. <laughs> you, you, so, so we have to, uh, here's one more. Language. Like, language is a great gift, right? With language, I, I should use language, you should use language to build each other up, to encourage, to, I don't know, to tell the truth, um, to comfort. But how is language often used? Gossip, break people down, right? We can even use the creativity that God has given us, which is what it means to be made in God's image, to creatively lie to you. Or creatively sell you something you don't need. And so what we see in this story is that we need to do the opposite of what Belshazzar does, and we need to use the things that God has designed the way that God has directed them. If we continue on, here's the next thing I want us to see. We should fear the judgment of God on our lives. We should fear the judgment of God on our lives. So there's, the Bible talks about things that you know, we don't like to talk about, one of them being the idea that every person who's ever lived will be judged. You know, just because you haven't been judged so far, because people think, well, I've done things and I, you know, I've not gotten in trouble. I've, got, I've done things, and I don't know, I've, there's not been any consequences so far in my life for the foolish things that I have done. That doesn't mean that there never will be. What, what we're going to see with Belshazzar is he's going to be surprised by the judgment of God coming upon his life. Because he's like most Americans, he thinks that there's, he will be accountable to no one and he will have no consequences. But look what happens in verse 5. Immediately, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, this is that famous passage. You've heard the expression Americans use. There's a lot of kind of phrases we picked up from the Bible. The handwriting on the wall, right? That's where that idea, that phrase comes out of this passage of Scripture. And what we see here, and this is interesting, we see the finger of God. Now, the hand of God is all over the Old Testament, right? I've told you before, the hand of God means the plan of God and the provision of God, and the presence of God. The hand of God is a good thing. It's like the hand of God is upon me. The hand of God is leading me. But the finger of God is something different. The finger of God in the Old Testament is a very negative thing. So it was the finger of God, it says, if you can go back and read it, the finger of God, it was that poured out all of the plagues on Israel. That was the finger of God. Uh, the finger of God is what wrote the Ten Commandments. In other words, it's a lawgiver, right? Because think about it, like when you point, right? This is why you tell your kids not to point. If you have little kids, they point at everything. Who's that? Don't point. You know, that's what you tell them. Because what do you do when you're pointing? You're like, you're focusing on somebody. You're saying, hey, you, I'm focusing on you. I'm, I'm not paying it, and I'm actually judging you. There's a reason I'm singling you out, right? That's what, the, that's what pointing does. And so the finger of God comes, and it, it comes in judgment. And then why on the wall, right? It's like, well, why would it write on the wall? Why not on the table? Or, you know, why does it write on the wall? Well, it's because, and you know this, the wall is where you put things that you're, you've accumulated and you've accomplished, that you're proud of. Right? You do that. It's, it doesn't matter if it's your Facebook wall, right? 
that you put your pictures in your post on, you're doing it on your wall, right? Or you go into your office, and what's in, and this isn't a bad thing. I'm just, what's in your office? Well, it's, you know, it's your diplomas, right? It's your awards. It's pictures from cool vacations that you've had. Not a bad, it's just things that you put up to show other people all that you've done and accomplished and been and seen, and well, good for you guys, right? Good for us, good for me. But, but in the Old Testament, particularly in that time, the kings would write a lot of their, hey, this is the wars I won, these are the victories I've accomplished. And so, the, so God comes with the finger of God, and he writes on the wall of God. And we'll see in a few minutes what he ends up writing. But look what happens in verse 6. The king's color changed, right? This is going to be that there's a volitional and emotional effect to experiencing the judgment of God in your life. It's an overwhelming experience. The king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed, and his limbs gave way. That's a, num- that's a nice way to say he went number one and number two at the same time. <laughs> that's, that his, yeah, that's what it means. Um, and it, it's the whole idea that he was trying to drink in front of everybody, do all this in front of everybody, now he's humiliated in front of everybody. Um, it says, and his knees knocked together, verse seven. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third in the uh, ruler in the kingdom. So again, we've talked about this every week, but you you see the cycle of sin and searching, sin and searching. I've sinned and now I'm searching. Is there a pill I can take? I'm looking to resources. I'm looking to relationships. I'm looking to websites. I'm looking to podcasts. I'm looking to books. Is there somebody who can help me? And then, I don't know why they keep calling these, these guys the wise men. They're, they're never helpful, <laughs> you know? Can you help us? No, but we are the wise men. Okay, you're not. Uh-huh. Verse eight, then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. And who walks in? Verse 10, his mom, Okay. The queen, and we know it's not his wife, right? He has many wives, he has many concubines, but he has one mother, okay? Um, This is his mother, the queen, says this. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. A couple things. Um, I want us to be encouraged by this to see what we're going to see is that God's going to use... Belshazzar's mother to speak to him and to give him direction. Right? There is, you know this, ladies, know this, moms. You have a special power to speak into your children's life. Yes, especially when they're young, but, but really at any age. And she's going to come in here, and what she's going to do, I actually want you to see this. Let's continue on the next verse, what she says. Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of your father, that means really his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named... uh, Belshazzar, slightly different name. Um, Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. This is so important. What what a mother does, and it's interesting, we don't know much about her, right? Except that she she thinks very highly of Daniel. If you read back over that, she has nothing negative to say about Daniel. 
She also seems to remember church history. She tends to remember the works of God in the past in other people's lives. But I think this is really important. What she does is, you know, she doesn't do what, what maybe is the temptation of moms to do with their kids when they sin, to excuse it, to, to explain it away, to make sure that there are no consequences for it, to call the college professor for him, Right? I don't know if you're here, there's a, I've talked about this before, but there's more and more moms now are, are asking if they can sit in on job interviews. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's like, so it's like, she doesn't do those kind of things. What she does though, it, but also moms realize, a good mom realizes, you know, she can only speak so much into her son's life. She, she actually, what she does, and this is a really good thing to do, it's like, well, what, what, what you know, a godly wife, it could be a godly mother, um, what, what does she do? She wants to connect him to godly men who will be able to speak into his life. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful principle. It's like, well, you know, I don't know what to do with you. And, you know, I am your mother, and I'm going to speak some, some things to you. But really what I'm going to try to do is you need a community group. You need a DNA group. You need an accountability group. You need someone who's going to challenge you. And let me just encourage you. Women have a powerful voice in men's lives. And, you know, it's interesting. I've seen this. I've seen this on a number of occasions. Um, what a woman will do is she'll often come into a man's life. And by the way, this is good to know. This is actually psychologically true. What a woman does is make a man aware of himself. That's what, like, uh, when the first time, I'll give you an example. Like a middle schooler, you know, you ask him to, you know, put on deodorant and he won't. And then he meets a girl in school that's cute. And he's like, I need to wear deodorant, you know? Um, and this is, this is interesting, most people don't know this, many, many men are very, very intimidated by very attractive women because all they do is reveal how inadequate the man is. The guy realizes I'm not smart, I don't have a good job, I'm overweight, my breath stinks. <laughs> it, it, that's actually what a woman does. She will make a man very aware of himself and then often what she'll do is she'll bring the man away from his loser friends. If he has loser friends, like, you know, the, 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 his drinking buddies and his video game friends, and right? Some of you are like, that's exactly what she did to me, right? <laughs> Some of you, I'm telling you why you're here right now. You're like, I get it, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was playing Fortnite, now I'm at church this morning, you know? Welcome, we're glad you're here. So, so this is what she does. And so she has a powerful influence on his life. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to step out and he's going to reach out to Daniel. And we're going to see this next. Daniel comes in, and Daniel, it says this, verse 16, but I have heard, this is what he says to Daniel, but I have heard that you give interpretations and you solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So in verses 13 to 15, which I didn't read you, he ends up calling Daniel to himself. Um, and then in verse 16, he kind of speaks to Daniel. And, and Daniel's going to be in his 80s, which is just a great encouragement to many of you. It's like, you know, and, and, we're, and our church is continuing to be full with more people in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s, and we, and we thank God for them. You know, and, and please don't think, and you, you know this, but don't think if you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 50s, whatever it is, or 80s, that, you know, your influence and your time is done. Daniel's going to be effectively used for two more chapters in his 80s. Right? I mean, think about it this way. No matter what, you know, political line you're on, Think about it this way, almost every political candidate is over 70 years old. I think that's a pretty big job, no matter like where you fall, Democrat, Republican, whatever. I think being president of the United States of America is a big job. And you have people in their 70s saying, give it to me. And I'd like to serve two terms. And I'm like, wow. 
right? You have people in their late 70s who are planning on being in office in the highest position in the nation in their 80s. You can be in a community group. <laughs> All right, let's pray. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, um, and then he goes, he goes to Daniel and, and he says to Daniel, he says, um, Daniel, I, I know that you do two things, right? And this is helpful to know. He says, I know you do two things. You, you're good at answering questions and solving problems. And, and, you know, that's a good way to think about ministry. You know, what, that, what did Jesus do when he came? Like, he, well, you know, we, yes, we're going to get to it. He, he died on the cross for people. He bore the wrath of God. We're going to talk about that. But on a very practical level, what did he spend most of his time doing? Answering people's questions and solving their problems. Somebody counted. I don't know who did. Um, Jesus was asked 113 questions. Everything from, you know, uh, how do I have eternal life to, hey, help me. Me and my brother are fighting. Will you, will you kind of tell us who's right and who's wrong, right? And part of what we want to do, and this is what Tim Keller, you know, I can't go through a sermon without quoting Tim Keller. Okay, here we are. Um, Tim Keller, um, former pastor in New York City, he says what contextualization is, and that's a big word that, like, you know, Christians use. How do we bring the gospel to people? He says what contextualization is, is ans- giving people the Bible's answers to their questions in relevant ways. So, you know, there's, people need their questions answered. People need their problems solved, right? It's like, well, why, did, why does Jesus have this huge healing ministry? I, I, well, I'd say leprosy is a problem, wouldn't you? I'd say being blind is a problem, wouldn't you? Jesus comes along and heals these people's problems. But it's like, you know, you, you're always going to have problems, right? It's like, well, who knows what all your problems are? You don't have enough money, and you hate your job, and your boss is a jerk, and you can't get along with your husband, and... You know, you don't like your father-in-law, and you're, you're, you have chronic illness. It's like, you know, you're depressed. You have your anxiety. It's like you have so many problems, right? Well, what is your, I always like to try to get to the bottom of things. What's your problem? What's the real problem? The, the problem is that you have problems, right? That's the problem. It's like, what's the, let's get to the bottom of this. Here's the problem with your life. You and I have problems. That's our problem. And so well, what does the Bible say about that? It says that Christ comes in and that Christ deals with our ultimate problem. The reason we all have problems is because we live in a world of sin and suffering. And Jesus Christ comes in and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to suffer for you and I'm going to be treated like sin instead of you. And I'm going to take care of your greatest problems. Now, your problems won't be taken care of. All your questions won't be answered. All your problems won't be taken care of in this life. But they will in the life to come if you repent and believe in the gospel. And so this is what, he, he pulls Daniel in, and because Daniel's 80, Daniel, and this is one of the great things, I guess, about being 80, and I'm looking forward to this, is you can just say whatever you want, okay? <laughs> Everyone's like, well, you know, he's old, she's old, and you can just say it, okay? So here's what he does. Daniel just says, then Daniel answered him, verse 17, because he said, hey, I'm going to give you all this stuff. Daniel answered him, and he said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. That's a common theme in scripture, right? I'm not, I'm not going to do what I'm doing for money. I'm not going to be nice to you because you have a lake house. You're not getting preferable treatment because you have a golf membership. I, I'm not going to be any nicer to you or treat you any differently because the gospel and the word of God and the ministry is not for sale. It's actually for free. It's better than that. I'm going to give it to you for free. He says this, the gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Never, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then in verses 18 to 21... He does something very, very interesting. He, he basically says, um, he rebukes, I won't read it all to you, you can look at it, but in verses 18 to 21, he rebukes um, 
Belshazzar for not learning the lessons that he saw in the life of his grandfather. Right? And some of you, you need to hear that. It's like, man, you're, you've been watching your dad. And you're not learning the lessons. You've been, you know people. You've seen them. You're not learning from bad examples. You're not learning from good examples. It's like your parents had a terrible marriage and you're not learning. Or your parents had a great marriage and you're not learning. It's like learn from other people. Life's too short and painful to learn everything yourself. And so here's what he says. Verse 22, here's the big rebuke from 80-year-old Daniel. He's just going to give it to him. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You know, it's, we've talked about this before, but the problem in my life and the problem in your life is not necessarily what you don't know, although that might be a problem, depending if you're a new Christian and you don't know a lot. But for most people, it's not what you don't know, it's what you don't act on that you know. It's what, you know this is why we talk all the time that we don't talk here about knowledge-based discipleship. Knowledge-based discipleship is, hey, read all these books and organize all this information and regurgitate it to me. That's, that's, and the more knowledge you know, the more mature you are. That's, I actually have seen that. That's actually how most places work. The most impressive person in the room is the person who knows the most Bible. That would be considered the most mature person. But biblically, what does Jesus say? What's the Great Commission? Teach them to obey everything. And so really, the, the, this is a, kind of a new thought for maybe some of us. The most mature person is the person who's obeying the most that they know. So you could know less than somebody else, but if you're obeying more, then you're actually a more mature person, right? And, and a terrifying thing, and I, I say this to somebody who's been to seminary and kind of study and teach for a living, is that the more you know, the more responsible you are to live it out. And that there's a greater judgment for people who knew so much and did so little with it. And so this is what he says here. And then he says in verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines that you've drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all of your ways you have not honored. What's interesting is, if you read over that, he doesn't say anything about him getting drunk. He doesn't say anything about him sleeping around, and I didn't even get into that, but the idea that there's all these wives and concubines, I mean, this was a frat party. This was a very sensual, indulgent party. He doesn't talk about that. He, he doesn't get into all the individual sins. Here's why, because sins are a symptom of a deeper problem in your life, right? In my life. When you sin, I mean, that's part of the hard work of it. It's like, well, why did you do that? Or why did you fail to do that? It's like, you don't know. You gotta think about it, you gotta talk it out, you gotta journal, you gotta watch yourself. I mean, it's hard. But, but here's what we learn here, that everything's ultimately a worship problem. Your deepest problem, it's a worship problem, right? Like, that's what he's saying. If you read over those verses, he's like, here's the main problem in your life, you're not worshiping God. And because you're not doing that, there's all these other symptoms in your life, because what happens, and I'm speaking kind of metaphorically, experientially, but what happens when you worship Jesus is your soul expands. That's what it's gonna feel like. It's like there's more of your soul, and so then when temptation comes, guess what temptation looks like? Small. And you know that. I mean, there's times where, you know, you're doing well with the Lord, and you're loving the Lord, and I don't know, 
You, you think about clicking on something you shouldn't, you go, well, why would I want to do that? That was, a, that was a dumb temptation. Why would I want to watch that? And you feel that. You're like, I don't even, it's not tempting at all because it's like I just ate a steak. I feel very full. I don't want Doritos. But then there's other time where Doritos look very, very good, right? And, and so what we end up seeing here is he, he ends up having a worship problem. Now, now, let me tell you how this works, and we don't have a lot of time left, but just re- give you a quick example. Here's how it's a worship problem. What, what you do, what I do, is everybody, when they worship, when they don't worship the true God, they create another heaven, another hell, and another savior. That's a good way to think about it. So think, this is a common one. Um, you know, people go, okay, here's, here's what heaven would be like. Um, me being very fit and healthy. Here's what hell would be like. Me being overweight and unhealthy. So there's my functional hell, being overweight and unhealthy. Here's my functional heaven, being in good, very good shape. So here's what I will worship, CrossFit, or whatever workout plan it is, or whatever healthy diet it is. And I, and I will worship my Savior so I won't go to hell and I will go to heaven. Right? For some people, it's poverty. I, hell's being poor. Heaven's being rich. And whatever, this, my job or my entrepreneurship or whatever, my trust fund, that's what I worship because it gets me out of hell and it gets me to heaven. And so he says all of this, but we got to get to the main thing with our time left, is the final thing is that we need to see the writing on the wall of our own lives. So there's this writing on the wall and it, there's a tension that's built because we're not told until right now what it said. It's like, what made this guy freak out and call everybody and have his mom come in the room and have Daniel come and rebuke him. It's like, what was said? Well, let's look at it. Verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Now, what's interesting is that's just in Aramaic. So that was written on the wall. It's not like it's a code that he couldn't read and understand. He knows what the words are. He just doesn't know what it means. Let's take one at a time. First, he says, here's what the word meant. Literally, literally, here's what it would be in English. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Here's what it means. First, numbered. He says this, verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. He's saying, here's, and this is written to all of us, right? This isn't just what happened, it's what happens. It's not written for them, it's written for us, okay, as well. And what he's saying is that one of the, one of the things to realize in your life, one of the things that will bring perspective into your life, and we talked about this at the beginning, I won't get into it a lot right now, um, is that your days are numbered, right? And you know this, it's like if you've ever, you know, gotten life insurance, and I've done that a couple times, right? Life insurance is a big experiment on how likely am I to die. It's like, well, based on your health and based on your age, you've got to pay this much because you probably won't die until then, right? It's like, well, every time you get life insurance, you realize your days are numbered, right? Every time, you know, somebody says something like um, uh, a bucket list, right? A bucket list is just another way to say my days are numbered. And my bucket list is, where, you know, where I'd like to go and what I'd like to do, right? This is why almost every pastor I've ever talked to prefers to do, including me, prefers to do funerals instead of weddings. And I love weddings. But at a funeral, everybody's sober-minded. The reality that life is short, that heaven and hell are real, that I'm not going to be here forever is there. And so he says, the first thing I want you to know is you, the first thing that will bring everything in your life into perspective is that your days are numbered. The second thing is he uses the word um, tekel. 
or uh, ver- uh, look here, he says this, verse 28, or I'm sorry, verse uh, 27. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and you have found, been found wanting. Now this is, you know, n- Americans don't believe this anymore, but it's like, there, here's what he's saying. There is a standard and you fall short. That's what, it, that's what it means. Weighed in the balances is a nice way to say, there's something you should be doing, there's a way that you should be living and you're not measuring up. I mean, I don't have time to get into all this, but one, one, you could think through the Ten Commandments. You, that, how will you be weighed? Well, at least two ways. You'll be weighed by the Ten Commandments, and, and I've never met anybody who said they've kept them. Have you perfectly loved God? Have you perfectly obeyed your parents? Have you never told a lie? Have you never stolen anything? Have you never coveted anything? It's like, no, you've all, we've all admit that we've broken that. Okay, well, we fall short of that standard. Or the New Testament, it's the standard of what's called the law of love. It's like, well, have you loved your enemies, and have you loved your neighbor, and have you loved your God fully? No, no, and no, right? And so what, what it's saying, secondly, it says that there's going to be a standard, and you are going to fall. I am going to fall short of it. And then here's the final thing he says. Verse 28. It says this. Paris, which is the... Um, it's the plural of a parson. It's the same word. He says, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. He's, he's, divided basically means um, what you have is being taken from you, which is a very humbling thing, right? It's like, what does the judgment of God say in your life? Time's up. When it happens, when you die or when Christ returns, it says time's up. Your days were numbered. I'm telling you ahead of time what you're going to be, what you're going to be weighed by. The Ten Commandments, the law of love. And I'm telling you ahead of time that everything that you have is going to be taken from you. You know? It's like, well, your body, God owns it. Your soul, God owns it. Your time on earth, God owns it. In fact, this this story ends, and I want you to see what happens. Verse 30. That very night, the night that Belshazzar thought was going to be a feast ended up being his funeral. Here's what it says. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And then next verse says, and basically Darius takes over and we have the Medes and the Persians leading from there. And the reason that, I believe the reason that this story is so, when we read it, is so hard for us. It, for, hard for me, if we're honest, if you read it, it's like, all right, it's a story about, on one level, it's a story about a young guy who drinks too much and parties with his friends and doesn't honor God. And he dies and is judged. And if you read it, you know, if you're really being honest with yourself, you've got to go, well, you know, over the course of your life, you've done worse things than that. Right? This is why some of these stories are so terrifying. You're like, well, man, I've done way worse than that. Right? And that's why, by the way, the grace of God, here's what the grace of God means. God does not treat you as your sins deserve. And, and it's like, you know, be so thankful. You read a story like this and you go, that could, that could have been me, that should have been me. And now when we show up, it's like, you know what happens? It's like God doesn't write it on a wall anymore. He writes it in a book for us. He doesn't give us, th- thank God, God doesn't give us five words on a wall, four or five words on a wall. He gives us thousands and thousands and thousands of words in a book across time. He's given us a book that's written down that we know the promises of God, the commands of God, the warnings of God. And then Jesus Christ shows up. Now, it's interesting. I told you earlier about the finger of God. The finger of God shows up two times in the New Testament. Only two times. Jesus Christ says in in Luke chapter 11, you can look it up later with your community group, but in Luke chapter 11, Jesus Christ says that basically when when I came to earth, I came and it is the finger of God working through me in power. 
And you think, it's like, well, what? it's so encouraging because what he's saying is the finger of God in the New Testament comes in grace, it comes in love, it comes in forgiveness. Because what did Jesus Christ say? Jesus Christ said, my life will be numbered, right? I'm from eternity to eternity, but I'm going to take on human flesh and I'm going to let my days be numbered. Not only that, I'm going to be weighed. The reason I'm going to live a perfect life and obey where you have disobeyed and I'm going to succeed where you have failed, it's because it, it says in, the, in Daniel that you were weighed and you were found wanting. So I'm going to be weighed and I'm going to be found enough and then I'm going to bear the weight of your sin. And guess what? You're not going to have to be divided because I'm going to be divided. I'm going to be divided from heaven. I'm going to be divided from my father. I'm going to be divided from friends. I'm going to be divided from home. I'm going to have no place to lay my head. I'm even going to be divided from God, the Father, because he's going to pour his wrath on me. Everything's going to be divided. In fact, they're going to cast, die, and divide my garments. Everything about me is going to be divided so that you can be made whole, so that you can be forgiven. Because here's the second place that the finger of God is mentioned. The second place the finger of God is mentioned is in John chapter 8, where this woman is caught in adultery. It's an interesting story. She's caught in adultery, and they bring her in front of Jesus, and it says that Jesus kneels down, and he writes in the ground with his finger. Go look it up. It's really interesting, and people don't know. We don't know for sure what he wrote. But most people think he probably wrote the Ten Commandments. He brought, you know, because he, he's about to go on and say, well, hey, who, who here has done all of these things? Cast the first stone. And what's amazing is that Jesus Christ comes, and the way that we see the finger of God work in the New Testament is it is a finger of forgiveness. And that's the good news. If you're here today and you're like, wow, that was awesome seeing people baptized, you can become a Christian today. You can receive Christ. You can be made whole. You can be forgiven. You can receive the grace of God. And if you're a Christian, you can learn from these stories, right? That's the whole purpose. The whole purpose is that uh, Belshazzar didn't learn. The whole purpose is that we would read these things. We'd be thankful for the grace of God in our life. And we would obey in all of the areas that we know God is speaking to us. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. We want to obey you. Lord, over all of our lives could be written, many, many, tell parson, Lord. Every one of our lives is numbered. Every one of our days is numbered. Lord, we are going to stand before you and, and we are not going to be weighty enough in ourselves. Lord, everything that we have now will be taken from us and it, we will stand before you naked and alone. And we thank you for Christ, Lord. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you for his grace. We receive it in his name. Amen.